Okay, so we are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, this evening. So, um, I'd like to read the whole thing. That's 47 verses. I think we will probably make it down to verse 32, just as far as reading goes. So let's just uh, begin reading there. The scripture will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible uh, with you. If you need a Bible, there's one on the uh, table right in the middle of the sanctuary there. So Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders uh, and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, But he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow insurrectionists. They had committed murder in the insurrection. Then the multitude began, excuse me, then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And they cried out, excuse me, more exceedingly crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off, excuse me, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Now they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked and said among themselves, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe and those who were crucified with him reviled him. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Open our hearts now to understand and receive all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously we've entered the point in the story in Mark's gospel where Jesus is being crucified. And as we pick up in verse 1, we're picking it up in the place where Remember, we had been in the night, the evening of Wednesday of Passion Week. The Jews, of course, account days starting about 6 p.m. or roughly at dusk. So beginning at Wednesday at 6 p.m., it was actually Thursday morning, their time. And so Jesus had gone through a number of illegal trials over uh, the course of the night. And remember last week, we talked about the fact that it was illegal for them to take a person to trial during night, to take a person to trial not during business hours, and all of that so that that person might have a fair and balanced trial. Then once a person was convicted, uh, especially of capital crime, they had a one-day waiting period after the decision had been made so that the man or the woman, whoever was convicted in this culture, it was usually men, could perhaps receive mercy or maybe new information would come to light. And so uh, here in verse 1 of chapter 15, we've come to the morning now. Jesus has gone through this, these illegal evening trials. Uh, Mark's gospel being the shortest give us, gives us the least details around these things. And you can find these additional details uh, by looking in Matthew, Luke, and of course John's gospel for uh, a fuller picture. But in verse 1 here, we're finding out immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now, they had charges that they were bringing against Jesus to the uh, governmental authorities. And and so around the time of Jesus' birth, during the reign of the Romans over Jerusalem and over Israel, they had taken away their authority to actually carry out their own sentences because in their world it was mostly a a religious trial and religious sentences were um, executed upon people and of course there would be occasion for capital punishment. But Rome had taken that uh, authority away from them And so thus, in order to be lawful and not to also be held in contempt or themselves get in trouble with the law, they had to go before the Roman rulers and they had to make a case to them as to why Jesus should be crucified. The other Gospels tell us that these are the charges they brought against Jesus. Number one, that he was perverting the nation or misleading the nation. And what they were speaking of is that he was leading people away from Caesar. Now, of course, they themselves did not honor or worship Caesar. 
But what they were charging Jesus with is that he was leading people away from honoring Caesar and uh, telling people that they should worship he himself, Jesus. And so this would be subverting or creating civil unrest in their mind, and they're trying to convince the government that this man had created crimes against the government. Jesus never said or did such a thing, clearly, but he was pointing people to his father, to God. The next thing they charged Jesus with was forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, of course, this also was not true because you may remember in the case where they were challenging Jesus with that and they had brought people around him to try and convince, uh, you know, catch Jesus in, in a lie, so to speak, or to misspeak, that Jesus said, hold up a coin whose inscription is upon it. And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. So he never forbade people to pay taxes to Caesar, but they lied and twisted the words of Jesus. And everywhere we read these accounts, you know, in Luke's account and other places, we find that they had witnesses there who heard it, but then later they would take those witnesses aside and counsel them to say things that were not true. And then one of the other things that they charged Jesus with, number three, saying that he himself is the Messiah or that he was a king. Jesus never, of course, said he was a king like Caesar, but that he was a king, the kind of king that God would be sending via the Messiah. But they used this charge and this tactic to try to strike fear into Pilate to make Pilate think that Jesus was just another in the long line of insurrectionists who would come along and that he might be planning, quote, a mutiny of sorts against the Roman government, that he might have a secret or subversive following. Now, all these things, of course, were not true, and they had gotten people to lie and to make up stories. Now, it's interesting to note so that we don't miss the fact that while these are human beings doing things that are evil, that Satan is a liar, that he is the accuser of the brethren, and that he was the one ultimately putting these things in the hearts of men. And so uh, Satan, of course, using whatever means he can to try and bring Jesus down. And so as they bring Jesus to Pilate and they bring their list of charges, Pilate, verse 2, says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It's as you say. And you get the sense in the exchange that Jesus is sort of gratifying him. He's not fully answering his question. But at the same time, he's saying to him, Well, if you want to think of me as a king, you can. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but Jesus answered nothing. And they, of course, in that moment, the other gospels tell us, were just shouting out almost in a riotous fashion against Jesus, saying all these charges, saying the things that he had said and done, that he had set himself against the Roman government and against Caesar. Verse 4, then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now we know in Isaiah 53 
that one of the things that God himself said of his son, the Messiah, the suffering servant, is that he, like a sheep being led to slaughter, would not stand and utter anything in his defense. So Jesus spoke nothing in his defense, and he spoke nothing in his defense in part because he knew that's what God required of him, but also to understand something, that there was something bigger going on here, and that something bigger was that God would defend him. He didn't have to defend himself. His father would defend him. You know, Jesus stands on his own two feet. And in the few minutes here, as they bring him to the place of convicting him and sentencing him to death, Jesus let his works speak for themselves. He let his life speak for itself. Jesus, in this case, did not fear man more than he feared God. In fact, he feared God more than he feared man. And so we can't miss these things in this story. Because Jesus did not fight back on his own behalf. You know, so often we determine that we're going to defend ourselves. And I've heard it said so many times, and I believe it's true, that if you want to defend yourself, God will let you. But if you will trust that God will defend you. Remember, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, I will repay. Jesus was there in the presence of his enemies. He had already spoken the truth. They didn't accept it. They didn't believe it. One person said this about this whole situation and about the fear of man. He said, the fear of man and the presence of a multitude must not make us hold our peace, meaning when we speak out on behalf of God. You know, we're not being put on trial in the same way Jesus was because we're not being put on trial as the Son of God. But whenever we are put on trial before men, whenever we are questioned and challenged before people about who Jesus was, let me just encourage you as we go through this story this evening of the conviction the sentencing and the crucifixion of Jesus, that he uttered not a word so that we would have the hope of heaven because of how he suffered and what he did on our behalf. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10, 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. Jesus in John 10 said, I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them saying, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded them. That was in John 10. And of course, that wasn't his time. But Jesus has now, on this day, come to the point which is his time. 
And so he's being sentenced in verse 6 of Matthew 15, excuse me, Mark 15. Now at the feast, he, that is Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. This was one of those little things that Pilate did to ingratiate himself to the people and to sort of, in a sense, we might say today, to throw the dog a bone so that they might believe that he was sort of honoring them. And so he was in the habit of doing this for for a few years now. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. When it says here in the scriptures, the rebellion, there was a well-known insurrection that took place and that this man Barabbas was a part of. During the uprising against the government, this insurrection you know, like a riot, that what happened is someone or several people were killed, and Barabbas was one of those people who did the killing. So this was not just your common political prisoner. This was a man who had actually committed a capital offense. He had actually, against Rome, risen up and actually killed someone, presumably a Roman citizen. So this man should be sentenced unto death himself. But Pilate uh, was offering this up to them, and they said, give us Barabbas. They began crying aloud and began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. You must do for us what you've always done. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, knowing in his own mind that he was finding no evidence of any substance against Jesus? And then verse 10, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He understood clearly why they had brought Jesus there. They were jealous. Jesus had a bigger following than they did. Jesus had done nothing wrong as far as he could see. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Well, you get the sense that this infuriated them. This is like rubbing salt in the wound. So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. And so the crowd is getting stirred up. And then verse 15, Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, so he himself did not want a riot on his hands, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, here's the interesting thing in this situation. Knowing that Barabbas was convicted of crimes, knowing that Barabbas had not only uh, been an insurrectionist, the very crime they accused Jesus of, but he, of course, had never committed, and then Barabbas himself being a murderer, being an enemy of the state, being on death row, They release Barabbas and allow Jesus to suffer the sentence that was laid upon Barabbas. Do you understand what's happening here? It's what we call substitutionary atonement. He's taking the sentence of another man upon himself. He's taking Barabbas' sentence. And Barabbas, of course, was a convicted murderer. He was a felon. He should have suffered the consequences. He should have been delivered over to scourging and capital punishment himself, he should have received the due recompense of his crime. But instead, he was released. 
and Jesus suffered in his place. There's a picture of Jesus suffering for Barabbas that we would understand that we, like Barabbas, deserve to suffer for the sins that we have committed, for the crimes against God that we have committed. Now remember, David did a very similar thing, right? In his sin with Bathsheba, where he had her husband killed on the front lines. And later when David finally repented, he said in his repentance to God, he said, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Bathsheba's husband? Yes. Did he sin against their family? Yes. Did he sin against their friends? Yes. But David recognized when he came to his senses in the presence of God, he said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. And he realized, I've got, to, I've got to repent before God. I've got to ask God for forgiveness. And so in the same situation here, as we see sort of this pinnacle of what's happening here, is Jesus is convicted in the place of Barabbas. Verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Now here's what happened if you read the other Gospels. <clears throat> Uh, and we get some of it here. They clothed him in purple, verse 17. They twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They clothed him uh, as they put the purple on him and they twisted the crown of thorns. They saluted him and called him and said, Hail to the king of Jews. So they began to mock him. They began to say, Well, if you're really a king, we should put purple on you. When they twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head, we get the sense that they drove it into his head, into his skull. So excruciating pain already. We are told in one of the gospels that they put a bag over his head and began to beat him with their fists. They used him as a human punching bag. Uh, not hitting him so much in the body, although I'm sure they did that, but they, it, it tells us that they were hitting him in the head. They were just beating him bloody. They struck him on the head with a reed, verse 19. They spat on him. They bowed the knee. They worshiped him. All of this, of course, being done in mockery. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him. They put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Now, <clears throat> we could take time and read through the entirety of Isaiah 53 and other places in Isaiah that describe in great detail what happened here. But in Isaiah chapter 50, we're told this, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So you get the sense there, right, from that that they not only beat him in the face with the bag on him, but they took the bag off, that they grabbed his beard and literally ripped it out of his face. I can't imagine the pain that that was. And so the amount of pain and suffering they put him through is only spoken of a little bit here in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're only less than two months away from the uh, Palm Sunday and Easter this year. It's actually the last two Sundays in March. So we're going to be coming back to all of this and reviewing it in greater detail at that point in time. However, when we get to verse 21, 
It says, then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Again, the other gospels give us a little bit more detail. As Jesus was being led away after he had been beaten and scourged, and his blood content in his body was low, he was dehydrated, he was weak with pain, he could barely walk. They had put this, the cross beam of the cross on his back. So if you don't understand Roman crucifixion, where they got him up to the place where they were going to crucify him, if you look behind me here, the vertical part of the beam was already there. The cross beam is actually called the patibulum. And this is a part, this is the part that they would lay on the convicted criminal. And this is thus where the idea of bearing your cross comes from. That after the criminal had been convicted and beaten and all of those things, they would lay the patibulum or the cross beam on the back of that person who was convicted and make him carry his cross, the cross beam, up to the place where he was going to be crucified. And so imagining this thing wearing, weighing more, more than 100 pounds because it was quite large. Uh, Jesus was unable to bear it because of his loss of strength and his weakness. And so they pressed this man, Simon of Cyrene, uh, Cyprus, uh, into uh, the service of the country there and coming alongside and carrying the cross of Jesus for him. It says they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Again, when we get to this around Easter in just a couple of months, uh, I'll show you some pictures of this. But if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, please go. But if you go on a tour, a lot of times they will take you <clears throat> inside the city wall to a place uh, that the Catholics have actually named it as a, uh, a site. And they say, this is the place where Jesus was crucified. And I've been there uh, through this process. But the scriptures themselves say that the criminals were convicted and, and crucified outside the city walls. And just outside the northern gate of the city, which is the Damascus Gate, we find there, it, it's actually gone now because the, uh, the Arabs blasted away the rock face to build a bus station. Uh, but the pictures are in abundance on the internet, um, the place called the skull. You can see clearly the, the place of the skull. And up on top of that hill was the place where they had crucified Jesus along with the other men who were convicted. Now for bonus points, go back and read Genesis 22, which is where God had told Abraham to put his son Isaac to death. And if you remember that story, Abraham and Isaac had gone with some servants. <clears throat> they had gone out. You know, God said, I want you to go to this place that I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And the thing was, of course, that God had told Abraham, he had given him a promise, through you, I'm going to raise up a nation. I'm going to give you and Sarah in your old age, when you're beyond childbearing uh, years and probability and all of that, I'm going to give you a son. And he did. So they were both in their 90s, close to 100, when they have their son. Now, as they're taking uh, 
their son Isaac out to the place that was called Mount Moriah. We know that because Abraham uh, had told his son, you know, get, get the stuff for the sacrifice and let's go. And he told his servants here, you wait here. The lad and I are going to go over yonder and worship. As they were going to go, the wood was laid on the back of who? Isaac, his son. And as they go out to the place and they begin to build the altar, the son says to the father, I see the wood, I see the fuel, I see everything, but the sacrifice, father, where's the sacrifice? And he says, God will provide for himself a ram. So as they go, they get there, they build everything. And then Abraham turns to his son and without saying a word, he binds the hands of his son and his son understands that he's the sacrifice. And in that scenario, it's beautiful. You have to go back and read it. Genesis 22, without uttering a word, he gets up on the pile. He becomes the sacrifice. He's willing to do. He trusts his father. There's such a picture there of the crucifixion. And as he's there and then Abraham raises the knife and I'm sure his heart is beating out of his chest and he's about to plunge it into the chest of his son, the angel of the Lord comes by and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop, don't do it. Now I know, now I know that you love me. Now I know that you will obey me and do what I've asked you to do. And in that moment, he hears a rustle. He turns around and he sees a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And he kills the ram, takes his son off of the altar, dresses the ram, puts it up on the altar. And he and his son together watch the ram take the sacrifice upon itself, the innocent life of one for another. Why is all this important to us? Because Mount Moriah is Mount Calvary. It's the same place, one and the same. So the place where Genesis 22 was enacted, 1,500 years before Jesus, is the place where Jesus himself was crucified. So here, the crucifixion, Simon of Cyrene, they brought him to Golgotha, place of the skull. They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. There's probably 10 scriptures we could list as we go through this that talk about, from the Psalms mostly, things that were messianic and prophetic looking forward talking about the place where Jesus would be crucified. We're going to look at Psalm 22 in just a moment, which contains much of this. And when they crucified him, verse 24, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Just so you understand the time accounting in the Jewish system, the first hour of the day was regarded to be 6 a.m. because that's when it was light. The third hour would be 9. The sixth hour would be noon. The ninth hour would be 3 p.m. So it was the third hour or 9 a.m. and they crucified him. And the inscription, verse 26, of his accusation was written above because it was common for them to take the crimes that the person was being judged for and to nail it to the cross. 
they said the king of the Jews, because that's all they could come up with from the Jewish side, from the uh, Roman side. They, they said he's the king of the Jews. And when they also crucified two robbers, excuse me, with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. Verse 28, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days. So we get the scene here. Jesus has been crucified. He's the, the, the cross beam that was carried, the patibulum that was carried by Simon of Serene, was laid down and attached to the cross. Jesus was laid down on the cross himself. His arms were stretched out. They were lashed to the cross and then the nails, the spikes, akin to railroad spikes, were driven not through his hands, but through his wrists. Because the hands would not have been strong enough, he would have pulled himself off of his hands. They had to be through bone, through the, the carpal area. So the nails were through his wrists, and then, of course, through his feet. And then he was hoisted up. And as he's there suffering, and this... Death by crucifixion is where we get the term excruciating from. He's in excruciating pain. He's there suffering, and people are circling around the bottom of the cross, almost like a pack of wild dogs, and we'll see this in a moment in the scripture. And they're, they're wagging their heads at him back and forth out of pride, mocking him. Ah, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Remember when Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And of course, they, they thought it was speaking of the literal physical temple. And Jesus was, of course, referring to the temple of his body. They said, save yourself and come down from the cross. We'd believe if you did that. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes, saying he saved him others. He saved others. Ha ha. Himself, he cannot save. So there's mocking going on there. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him, the two thieves. Verse 33, now when the sixth hour had come, so three hours had passed since he was crucified, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 p.m., these black clouds had rolled in. And you get the sense here, this is probably a bright sunny day until noon. And then God did something very dramatic, Old Testament-like. All of a sudden, these clouds come in. And they cover Mount Moriah, they cover Mount Calvary. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And we get the sense here, although we're not told specifically, that this period of time of darkness upon the Son of God is the time when we believe God was literally pouring his wrath out on the Son of God, pouring our sin out onto Jesus, because sin is darkness, is it not? And during this time of darkness, God pouring out his wrath. And at the ninth hour, verse 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus in that moment, being fully God, being fully man, but now for the first time ever in the triunity, 
the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Son himself being separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Psalm 22, which I want you to turn to, was written somewhere 700 years or so before the crucifixion. Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans yet. So as we take a look at Psalm 22, we will understand a few things. First, David wrote this as a messianic psalm. David wrote this as a prophetic psalm. And Psalm 22 is a divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son. If you look at your Bible, you'll see there at Psalm 22, probably the heading that's inserted says, Why have you forsaken me? So let's read it. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people." All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Notice all the pronouns are capitalized here. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion, which is a description of who? Satan. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Do you see here that everything we just read is everything that took place during the time of the crucifixion on that day and leading up to it as Jesus was beaten, as he was mocked, all of those things, these are all fulfilled right here. Psalm 22, every single verse carries some kind of fulfillment. In Isaiah 52, 14, we also find this where Isaiah said, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. Visage is another word for his appearance. And his form more than the sons of men. So all of these things being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus and the way he was crucified. Verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that 
said, look, he is calling for Elijah, heard what? When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi lama sabachthani sounded like he was trying to say Elijah to them. Then someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed, and they offered it up to him to drink, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. A fulfillment in that moment of Psalm 69, 21, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And look at verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What veil? In Exodus 26, God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of uh, cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall <clears throat> bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy. When Jesus breathed his last and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, what was all of that about? You see, God himself, as it were, took his hand like a knife and divided that veil. And we're told that that veil in its construction was probably about an 18-inch thick tapestry that was woven. That was between the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the outer place where the priests would minister. Remember once a year on Yom Kippur, as we know it, when the priest would go in to minister in the very presence of God, and he would take the, the blood of the sacrificed lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. When he went in, he had a rope tied around his ankle in case he took sin in with him, or in case he sinned in the presence of God, and he dropped dead. And they would have to have a way of getting him out. And certainly other men who may potentially be unholy couldn't go in there. So they had to be able to drag him out. And so when Jesus died and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was so that now man could have access to the temple. Uh, to the most holy place. To the very presence of God. Why? Because we're told all now throughout the New Testament. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's by the blood of Christ that was sprinkled on the throne of the mercy seat in heaven. That the, the mercy seat on earth in the temple, which was simply a type of the heavenly, had been atoned for once and for all. And so the veil was torn in two. So when the centurion, verse 39, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, he saw how Jesus suffered. He saw that he didn't shout obscenities to those people. He didn't act like any other man because he wasn't like any other man. He suffered as the son of God. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And then there were also women 
looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, now when we would get into a holy week like this, where the Sabbath, the Sabbath was always regarded to be sundown on Friday to sundown on uh, Saturday, there would be <clears throat> a holy Sabbath or a high Sabbath. And so that is what was happening here during this week, the week of Passover and the way it was falling on those days. So because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, a member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of those who was expected to fall in line with the council's decision to crucify Jesus. But we begin to get the sense here that Joseph of Arimathea was a man who had faith. In John's gospel, we find a similar account where it says, John 19, 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And then John gives us this additional detail in Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, that was in John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 100 pounds of other spices. So verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was dead already, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine, excuse me, bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Now, as I mentioned, if you ever get a chance to go, you'll see what's called Joseph's tomb right at the base of the mountain, right beside where the face was in the rock. So a Sabbath day journey, which they had in their law, was you know, so many paces. And this met that requirement. And this is why they were able to do that and to lay the body uh, in the tomb without violating the Sabbath. And so it's right there at the, the base of Mount Moriah or uh, Mount Calvary. So he uh, laid him in the tomb. They rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So next week in chapter 16, we'll get to the resurrection. But I want to close with this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of this was done for you and me.
Everything Jesus did was for us. Us who, us who believe. So if you believe, praise God, this was done for you. And if you don't yet believe, why not? Where else are you going to find someone who would take another person's death sentence? Who would take another person's crime upon them? Who, without uttering a word, <clears throat> would go before people and suffer merciless things, unspeakable things, so that others might be given life and have a relationship with his father. I mean, if you have a good family and you have a good thing going, you kind of want that for yourself, right? And kind of like the rest of everybody else is too bad, man. I'm sorry, I got a great dad. Too bad you don't. But not Jesus. He wants to share his dad with everybody. He wants to share his love with everybody. And so all of these things he has done, he has done for you, for me. Would you come to him? Would you give your heart to him? Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for making it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for the sacrifice that we speak of sometimes, Lord, perhaps a little too flippantly, but Lord, how else do we understand it that you gave all? that we might have a relationship with you, that our sin might be taken away and atoned for. <clears throat> and Lord, as you said in Romans 6, <clears throat> shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue in it? But you died that we might turn from sin and walk away from sin and now walk in the newness of life, walk under the blood. Walk in forgiveness, walk in re redemption, walk in reconciliation. And that we might live as those who have been set free. And just as your word says, though whom the Son is set free, he is set free indeed. And so we rejoice in that this evening. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down yourself and giving everything for us. We just praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen.